stand with me as we read a passage of scripture that we're going to study this morning, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you're needing to use the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 774. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, page 774 in the Pew Bible. Here's the word of the Lord. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, there are a couple of people in the scriptures that I feel kind of get a bit of a, a bum rap. One of them is Thomas. You may remember Thomas. He's one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, uh, forever known to history as Doubting Thomas. I mean, I, I can understand I and mean, give the poor guy a break. He just wanted some evidence that Jesus had actually physically rose from the grave it's a reasonable request when you consider that no one in human history has ever raised themselves from the dead. That, that's a natural question you'd want. You'd want to know that this, in fact, happened. But because of his skepticism or maybe need for more proof, he's forever known as Doubting Thomas. If you've ever heard someone say, don't be a Doubting Thomas, it comes from that biblical reference. The second person I think gets kind of a bum rap is our friend Jonah. Jonah is one that teaches us not by his example, but by his weakness. Now, as I said last week during the introduction, I agree with the general scholarship that Jonah is an autobiographical record, that Jonah, after the events recorded in this book, obviously recorded them so that people would know what the Lord had done. And in so doing, he does nothing to clean up his own image. He honestly and portrays himself in all of his foolishness and all of his arrogance and all of his self-righteousness, even though forever he would be known as the runaway prophet. But I think in Jonah's honesty, we readers learn one harsh truth, and that is the, the disturbing possibility that we can pledge our lives to God yet end up spending much of our time actually running from and avoiding the very God we claim that we want to serve. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, maybe you've experienced this strange contradiction in your own life. While loving Christ, you find that you often turn from His truth more often than not. While trusting Christ, you find that you rely on your good performance and your good deeds to be accepted by Him. While serving Christ, you struggle with wanting to do things your way and at your convenience. Friends, Jonah is a reminder to us that you are not alone. If any of those resonate with you, Jonah is a reminder that you're not the first. You're not the first individual or the first person to feel the tension between God's call colliding with your comfort or with your convenience or with your career plans or your conscience for that matter. This book is not a book about God recalling or, or, or dis disciplining one of his prophets. It is a book about God loving and showing mercy to one of his own so that he could be more like what God wants of all of us, and that is to be a better reflection of his own character. 
In many ways, Jonah is a really fitting book for us to be studying here in South Orange County. As we learned in, um, last week in 2 Kings chapter 14, Jonah was good at what he did. He was successful, we'd say. We would say he was competent. He was on top of his A game. He was, after all, one of God's elite group of men known as the prophets. Unfortunately, he, like probably the rest of Israel and perhaps like many of us, became comfortable as a result. Now, I don't mean comfortable as in the kind of basic comfort that is reasonable that we all would experience, that, that our basic needs are met, that there's, that there's safety that we experience. I mean the kind of comfort that can often mask complacency, the kind of comfort that can make us lose our urgency to live for things that matter, the kind of comfort that sees its own comfort as the pinnacle of life rather than conformity to Christ. And nothing shatters or disturbs a comfortable life, or, or for that matter, a comfortable church, more than God's passion for the world. God's call to Jonah revealed more than anything to this prophet that there was still so much more about God's grace that he had to understand and learn about and experience. So in the next four or five weeks as we study this, we're going to find what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 to be true of us, that what was written about Jonah is good for our own instruction, which should make us realize that there's probably more about God's grace, uh, probably more to experience about it, a better and deeper way to understand it than we already do because there's more of Jonah in our hearts than we would probably realize when we first read this book. Originally, we're going to look at the first six verses, but I, I wanted to pull back a little bit and spend a little bit more time uh, adding some dimensions to Jonah. Remember last week in the introduction, I talked about sometimes we read these as one-dimensional, that we, we have this, okay, Jonah's good, Assyrian's bad, or Assyrian's good, Jonah bad, and, and they're just one-dimensional. So I wanted to spend a few moments making Jonah a little bit more like you and I. So we're just going to focus on the first three verses, and then next week, we'll finish up the remainder of the chapter, because I think there's one theme that runs through it. So this morning, morning, we're going to ask three questions about Jonah. What was Jonah like? What was Jonah's calling from God? And what was Jonah's problem? And I don't mean that like, what's your problem? But I mean like, what really was the struggle that Jonah experienced? So for that, I want you to keep your finger in Jonah and then turn open to 2 Kings chapter 14. We looked at it a little bit last week, but this is the uh, other passage in the Old Testament that helps us understand more of Jonah the prophet. So 2 Kings chapter 14 Verses 23 to 27, it's page 321 if you're using the Pew Bible. This is what is written in 2 Kings 14:23. Uh, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. So let me explain that. It happens to be the case that there are two kings, one of the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. They're both sharing a very similar name, Joash. Okay, so this is, I don't want you to be confused. It's referring to the fact that Amaziah is the son of Joash, and he's king of Judah in the south. Jeroboam is the son of jo a different Joash, king of Israel in the north, and he began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned, Jeroboam that is, reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the first Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. Verse 25. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, 
according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hepher. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So there's a lot of stuff going on in this background text, and it's very helpful for us to understand Jonah a little bit more. For one thing, we know that Jonah is a prophet. Now, that might be obvious, but you notice in the book of Jonah, he never refers to himself as a prophet. But we learn here in 2 Kings 14 that he is, in fact, a prophet. And if you are familiar with reading your Bibles, you may have surmised that by the very common opening to the book of Jonah. See there in the very first sentence, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This follows a very familiar literary pattern found all throughout the Old Testament to introduce prophetic literature, prophetic genre. It follows the same pattern we see in Hosea, Joel, Micah, and Zephaniah. You see on the screens before and behind me. So this you would commonly see in the prophetic literature, and this would indicate to the readers that what you're about to read is not kind of history, it's not poetry. This is, proph this is prophetic words from Yahweh himself. In the same kind of manner in our culture, uh, what kind of literature do you think you're reading when you hear the opening words, once upon a time, right? You immediately know that whatever's going to follow is a fable, a story of some sort, a fairy tale, right? So in the same kind of way, whenever the readers would read, now the word of the Lord came to, and the insert name of prophet, they knew immediately, we're dealing with prophetic literature. This is a word from Yahweh to the people. So we see that Jonah was in this unique group that God had raised up to serve as his voice into the governing affairs of men. Now, it's important to note for, for you biblical scholars that the office of prophet comes onto the scene simultaneously as Israel becomes a monarchy. At the same time that the nation of Israel desires to be governed by a king, God raises up the office of prophet. And that is because God's people, then and now, were to be ruled by God as the king. A part of his redemptive plan, there needed to be an earthly, uh, earthly monarchy. And so there was the kingship, first by Saul, then David and Solomon, and so on and so forth. But to make sure that the people always knew that they weren't governed by a man, that it wasn't some human king that called the shots, God raised up the prophets that would speak the word of God, particularly to the king and then to the people, so that the king and the people always knew that at the end of the day, it was no word of man that governed them, but the words of God himself. And so wherever you saw a king, you were sure to find a prophet. And Israel flourished when there was a godly king and a godly prophet, and Israel always floundered when you had either an ungodly king or an ungodly prophet. So we see Jonah is in one of those, that, that privileged group of men that would speak on behalf of the Lord. Notice what verse 25 of 2 Kings 14 says, that the prophet was not the servant of the king. Now, this is important to note. Now, in our culture, we don't, we don't understand monarchies at all because we're a democracy. But when you're in a monarchy, everyone is a servant of the monarchy. But the scriptures are very clear, very careful to recognize and put in there that the prophet was not the servant of the king. Notice in verse 25, the prophet was a servant of the Lord because he was his prophet. 
and the prophet's job was to speak the word of God into the king's ear. So the prophets, what they did was they stood in the presence of God, hearing the words of God to give to the people of God. We see this clearly in 1 Kings 17, Jeremiah 23. We say it beautifully. So Elijah says, Elijah the prophet, before the Lord whom I stand, in Jeremiah 23, stand in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word. Stand in the counsel, proclaim my word to my people. So the job of the prophet was to stand in the counsels of the Lord, to stand in the presence of the Lord, hear his orders, and give them to the people. And that's what Jonah's job was. And according to 2 Kings 14.25, Jonah did pretty good. As a matter of fact, Jonah was very successful. He was a competent prophet. He was a faithful prophet. And through his prophetic work, Israel restored the borders. The borders of Israel expanded and grew. You remember last week in the introduction, we talked about the historical factors that predicated or allowed Israel to experience this prosperity. The Lord had rose up Adad Nerari III in Assyria and brought Israel relief. And so Jonah, the prophet, encouraged Jeroboam II, hey, expand Israel's borders again. Reclaim the land that God rightfully gave to us. Jeroboam II heard that, expanded it, and it was prosperous, and it was wonderful. Everything worked out great. Jonah was a faithful prophet with a good message of prosperity, which led to a comfortable position within the kingdom. You know, a lot of times prophets were a a, a burden to the kings because the kings wanted to do things their way, and the prophet always told them not. But here we have Jonah saying to Jeroboam, do this and God will bless you. So you can understand that Jeroboam probably favored Jonah. In short, if you're Jonah, life's pretty good. You are being faithful to the calling God placed on your life. You are faithfully proclaiming the word and everything's turning up roses, everyone likes you. This was not the case, however, for Jonah's contemporary Amos, who was another 8th century biblical prophet. The Lord raised Amos up to denounce Jeroboam's apathy to the poor and his injustice. So these two are contemporaries. You can imagine if you're the king, you like it when Jonah shows up, and you get pretty upset when Amos shows up. Because when Jonah shows up, he says, expand the borders, increase the territory of the kingdom. And then when Amos shows up, he says, you are apathetic and disobedient and you don't care for the people. So the question is, what was Jonah like? He was a faithful servant, just like Amos, but with a different message, a faithful servant who prospered and enjoyed a comfortable life in a time of prosperity. Here's the irony, however. The irony is that God's love is not being displayed for Jonah in the picture we have just described. In other words, we don't see in the fact that Jonah's ministry was successful and he was comfortable, well-liked, and prospered. That isn't necessarily the picture of God's love. The reason I bring that up is because sometimes we operate with a view kind of that God's love functions more like a kind of karma right? I do good, and God blesses me. I do bad, and then God judges me. There's some principle to that we see in the scriptures, but we often function as if it's some kind of impersonal karma. And so it's easy to see that Jonah's life is comfortable, he's blessed, he's prosperous, God must really love him and be happy with him. The irony is God's love to Jonah is not shown or not seen in his prosperity. 
In fact, because God has a deep love for Jonah, God intends to interrupt this comfortable life and in doing so, reveal how much more growth Jonah has to go through and experience. Friends, I hope that puts a different spin on the struggles and challenges of your life. That those struggles and challenges, those very difficulties that you are asking God perhaps to deliver you from may be the very evidence of his love for you because he sees things you don't and he wants to do something that maybe right now you don't want him to, but later you'll be glad he did. God's love for Jonah is not seen in his prosperity and comfort. It's going to be seen in disturbing his life. That brings us to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Look at, so that's Jonah. That's what he's like. What was Jonah's calling? Look at verse 2. It reads, arise, go to Nineveh. Hard stop, period. Nineveh, question mark. That's not what we prophets do. Yahweh, okay, we are prophets to your kings, to your people, not for the heathen. Can we renegotiate the terms of this agreement here? Furthermore, preaching your prosperity to your people in their country is one thing. Preaching doom to your enemies in their country is entirely something else that I really want to talk about. Here, let's, let's talk, let's spend a moment and talk about the Ninevites, right? Now you have a better understanding of the kind of person Jonah was. It's a lot like we are probably. Let's talk a little bit about the Ninevites. If you're a note taker, write down Nahum chapter 3 verse 1. Nahum is another prophet. It's, it's about two books to the right of Jonah. And it records the fall of Nineveh that took place about 150 years after Jonah's ministry. Like is so often the case, as we read last week, the Ninevites heard God's word, repented, turned to Yahweh, Yahweh relented and blessed them, and Nineveh experienced a century of prosperity. It was amazing. But within 150 years, like is so often the case, their urgency to live for the Lord and respond to him diminished, and they went right back into their vile wickedness. And so finally, God brought the judgment upon Nineveh that he had promised to bring, but then relented because of the repentance 150 years earlier through Jonah the prophet. But this is how Nahum describes the city of Nineveh, chapter 3, verse 1. As full of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, and never without victims. It's a pretty dire description of any city, isn't it? Full of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, and never without its victims. As a matter of fact, friends, the Assyrians, Nineveh was one of their capital cities, the Assyrians were world famous for their cruelty and barbarity to its enemies. I mean, when I say world famous, I mean, it's literally written in stone how cruel they were because this is how they dominated and maintained control of the empire. Stark pure fear of their cruelty. And when I say literally written in stone, let me show you, it literally was written in stone right up there. So these are some pictures. Two of these are my personal pictures, and then there's a graphic I had to get from a book. But these two pictures I took last, almost a year ago, when Lori and I took the kids to England, and we went to the British Museum in London. And this is like a nerd's Disneyland, right? So I'm just like freaking out, because what we're seeing here on the right is the black obelisk of Shalmazar III, and on the bottom are the reliefs of Sennacherib, uh, of his siege of Jerusalem. 
So literally, so these reliefs, these walls, uh, the British Museum has several of these. They were literally in cities like Nineveh and, 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 and throughout the Assyrian Empire, and they would record the, their victories and their triumphs over their enemies. And you could see, if you look really good, you see how they're taking off people's heads and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that actually is Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem. So, friends, this is, again, the Bible is not made up myth. It's literally in stone, uh, several tons of stone in the British Museum. So, obviously, as a, as a Bible nerd, I want to stay here all day, but they had a Harry Potter exhibit. So, guess what we spent most of the time doing, right? But I got these pictures because on this, these stones, if the names Shalmanazar and Sennacherib sound familiar, they should because they're the kings written in the books of 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles that attacked Jerusalem and were the enemies of God's people. And so again, th this is not just Bible stuff, friends. This is history literally in stone. So on the, the picture graphic you see there are pictures uh, like of a relief, but they photographed it and cleaned it up so you could see it more. And you see people, men being flayed alive and getting their tongues pulled out. So what I wanna do is read to you, you can see the evidence there, how Assyria, the Ninevites, were to the people of Israel, and really to anybody in Mesopotamia during the 8th century. I, I don't see too many kids, so we're okay. Um, yeah, because some of it's, and I need to be careful, but let me just read this, just two paragraphs. Uh, this is from Shalmanazar. I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. So this is the black obelisk there. Uh, like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. My prancing steeds, harnessed for my riding, plunged into the streams of their blood as into a river. The wheels of my war chariot, which brings low the wicked and the evil, were bespatted with blood and their filth. And he's speaking of their excrement. With bodies, with the bodies of their warriors, I filled the plain like grass. Their testicles I cut off and tore out their privates like seeds of a cucumber. Um, in talking about Sennacherib now, his siege against Jerusalem, in strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off others, their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of their heads, and the rest I hung their heads on trees around the city. This is just two of pages and pages and pages and pages of what they did to Israel and the people in the surrounding Mesopotamian empires at the time. These are the people God says, Jonah, go bring them my word. I hope you get a sense of maybe why Jonah was a little bit conflicted, right? <laughs> Yahweh wants to send his prophet there. So the question we have to ask though then, because something doesn't make sense, why does then Jonah run? If Jonah believes that God's going to judge them straight out, wouldn't he be jumping for joy that Yahweh is going to lay the hammer and wipe out these barbarians? But he doesn't do that, does he? He runs the other direction. Why does that happen? For the answer to that, we have to go to verse 2. So the Lord says, arise, go to Nineveh, this great city. And by great, he doesn't mean like fun or nice. He means just a huge city. And call out against it for... Whenever you see the word for in your text, this is just like grammar. It's really giving the grounds of something because their evil has come up before 
me. Now, the interesting thing about the Hebrew word evil there, rah, uh, it happens, there's a little bit of semantic flexibility. By the way, most of our words have the same kind of thing, right? Words have this semantic range. And in the book of Jonah, it's used nine times, and it's recorded as evil, as we see it here in verse 2. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, it's uh, translated as disaster or calamity. And then in Jonah 4, 6, it's translated as discomfort. And so different nuances of this word can be brought out. So in verse 2, when God says, their evil has come up to me, and I'm sending you there, it can mean a couple of things, possibly. It could mean that straight up, their evil is known to me, and I'm going to judge them. One possibility. It could also mean their disaster, their calamity has come up to me, and I must deal with it. In other words, it's an act of mercy. He sees their calamity. And you remember, as we talked about in the introduction last week, we talked about the difficulty that Assyria was facing during this historical period. Or third, the Lord may mean their calamity, because of their evil, is known to me, and I'm going to deal with it. And so both we have tones of judgment and mercy. In other words, friends, Jonah recognizes that when God's word of judgment comes, it is often also and simultaneously God's word of mercy. Because when God's judgment comes, you can always turn from your sin. And as we learned last week, that's exactly what the Ninevites did. And they received, they were recipients of God's mercy. And Jonah did not want that. Friends, when we read this, we have to think about when God's word comes to us and judges us, that is also a mercy. I wonder if you've ever considered you feeling the conviction of your sin is just as much an exercise of God's mercy to you as it could be felt as his judgment against you. Friends, if God's word, God's words brings conviction into your life, there is a lot you have to be joyful about. How sad the day, if it ever should come, that you no longer can hear the sweet yet burdensome call to turn from your sin and turn to God. Friends, if you're wrestling with conviction, if you feel God calling you to turn from something, that's something to celebrate. You are not so far gone. Pity the man or woman who has no understanding of their sin any longer. They cannot even hear the sweet burden of God saying, turn from death to life. So God's word of judgment is simultaneously God's word of mercy to us. Isn't that exactly the essence of the Christian hope? Isn't that what the cross is simultaneously? God's judgment and God's mercy to anyone who will hear and repent and believe. But Jonah didn't want any of it. To the Ninevites, to them... They get in on your mercy and grace too? No way. Friends, is there somebody in your life you're saying, "Uh uh-uh, not them too. They don't deserve mercy. What was Jonah's problem? That's the last thing we're going to look at this morning. What was Jonah's problem saying? They don't deserve mercy, number one. Since when do you deserve mercy? Isn't that the definition of mercy? If you deserve mercy, it's not mercy. 
By definition, mercy goes to those who don't deserve it. That's why it's called mercy. And Jonah forgot that fundamental reality. In all his success and prosperity and the comfort, he forgot the radical reality that he doesn't deserve mercy any more than anyone else. And yet he interpreted his comfort and his everything, prosperity and all that he had as somehow he was worthy of it and earned it. And so when God radically challenged him to bring this same wonderful message to the Ninevites, Really what was going on was his own self-righteousness was being exposed. You see, Jonah was content to love and serve God so long as it made sense to him and fit his paradigm. But when God's call contradicted what Jonah wanted, what once looked like obedience and faithfulness in 2 Kings 14 is being revealed as convenience and spiritual pride. So the prophet who would stand in the counsel of the Lord, verse 3 tells us twice, flees from the presence of the Lord. And he says it twice so we don't miss that reality. Friends, do you see any of Jonah in you? Yes, you're, you're, you're genuinely happy to serve and do what you think God asks of you so long as it fits what you think he can ask of you. But what happens when God's call is more radical than you'd like? Have you gotten so comfortable that you can no longer hear God's radical call to live for what matters? Between services, I was sitting down here with a young man from our church. If you're at the Lord's Supper service, we prayed for them because they're feeling God's call to leave their comfortable life, tenured position in the school district, starting up a photography business, doing well, to go to one of the most atheistic, secularist countries known also called the gospel graveyard of Japan. It's very easy to sit back and be comfortable. And Jonah, God challenged Jonah's comfort. We see what's coming out of Jonah. Friends, are you the Lord's servant because he's worthy and deserving of your love because you've experienced firsthand his amazing grace? Or are you secretly convinced of your own goodness and worth and expecting God to reward you accordingly with the life you want to lead? Which is it? That's a hard question to to have to ask ourselves, but it's a critical question if we're going to understand the gospel and what we're about. Are you God's servant because you've experienced his grace and he's worthy? Or do you secretly think that he, he needs to give me the life I think I deserve? If you want to know which which one you are, it's it's easy to figure it out by just simply answering this question. How do you respond when others are the recipients of God's lavish mercy and grace? How do you respond when you see people being blessed like crazy by God? Do you rejoice in seeing others experience God's goodness that way? Or do you somehow feel a little left out, passed over, maybe a little jealous, maybe a little envious, maybe even angry? When you see God just blessing others, when your coworker gets the promotion, do you celebrate God's goodness in their life or do you question God's providence in your own life? When your friend gets married before you do, do you begrudge her her joy or do you, do you enter into her celebration? You see, in many ways, Jonah 
is just like the elder brother in the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son. You know it from Luke 15, right? So a father has two sons, a younger son and an older son, and the younger son inappropriately asks his father, give me my share of the inheritance now, and then spends it on, on loose, wild living, on women, on wine, and all this stuff, gambles it away, brings total shame to the family, and in a, in a shame-based culture, that's huge brings disgrace and shame to the family. And then when he comes to his senses, he realizes, man, my dad's servants do better than I am. I'm eating the slop of pigs. I'm going to go home and ask dad, just take me in as a hired, hired hand, and I'll be happy. And so as he's coming down the road, you know the story, the father, again, to his own shame, runs to his son and embraces him and loves him, puts the family signet ring back on, puts the robe on him and celebrates, say, let's get the fatted calf and throw a big party. And all the while in the background, who do we have? The elder brother, the obedient, faithful, steady older brother. Does he celebrate? No. In the face of his father's lavish mercy and grace to their wayward son, to his wayward sibling, what rises in the elder brother's heart is self-righteousness and the true motivation of his service. What looked like obedience and faithfulness on the surface was just a veneer hiding self-righteousness and a sense of entitlement. He didn't love his father. He didn't serve and be faithful because he loved his father and realized the grace that was given to him from his father. He was waiting for the day he got his inheritance. Friends, so often as Christians, our self-righteousness is exposed in of all strange ways when we see the blessing of God on someone else that we think doesn't deserve it or somehow we do. And so we see the same in Jonah. When God wanted to bless the Ninevites, what came out of him was just self-righteousness and jealousy. And we can be the same way. If you really want to see, if you understand the essence of grace, how do you respond when others are blessed? Do you celebrate with them because you recognize you don't deserve anything you got anyway? So this is all grace. Or do you somehow feel you're being shortchanged? It's funny how our self-righteousness can show up when God is so good and loving. Yes, Jonah could have continued his comfortable life being faithful and obedient. I don't mean air quotes like he wasn't faithful and he wasn't obedient, right? He really was faithful. He really was obedient. But God wanted more for him and God wanted more from him. Jonah was a good man. God wanted to make him a godly man. Jonah had placed boundaries on where he would live, what he would do, and how he would serve, and God was about to disrupt those boundaries. God loved Jonah enough to disrupt his comfortable life. And when God did, by telling him to go to the Ninevites, his selfishness and self-righteousness was exposed, and what did he do? He quit. Verse, th verse 3, I'm out of here. But God wouldn't quit on him. And we'll see all about that next week. Friends, let me close with this. When, when God calls us to something new, he's always up to something good. When he calls you something different, he's always up to something good. However difficult the call may be, it is one of grace and our ultimate joy. 
Jonah didn't realize that when God was doing something different. He didn't see that it could be something good, but that's what God does. Friends, just let's reflect on a moment comparing, because Jesus did this, comparing Jonah and Jesus. Because Jonah, as we learn, was in a good place, doing good work, enjoying a good life. Then God said, Jonah, I want you to go to another place and do a different work for the sake of people I love, people who are facing an imminent judgment. And Jonah said, no. And Jesus was in heaven, ruling the universe by the word of his power, adored by angels. He was in the best place, doing the best work and enjoying the best life. Then the father said to him, Jesus, I want you to go to another place. You'll be utterly rejected. You'll live a life that will lead to torture, crucifixion, and death. You will become an atoning sacrifice for people I love who are facing an eternal judgment. And Jesus said, yes. Recognizing that Jesus did this all on our behalf moves us from being people who are concerned about our own comfort, our own reputation, and our own success to caring more about people all around us whom God has called the church to love and to serve. The New Testament put it this way, loved much, we are free to love much. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this huge cross that's mounted on the wall behind me, how much we have been loved. And yet we also recognize, in spite of that, how little we actually love. The blessings you bring into our lives of success and prosperity that bring to us comfort often deaden us to the realities that Rome is burning, that this world is lost, that people all around us are facing imminent judgment. Father, wake us from our comfort, from our apathy. Father, let us not cling on so tightly to the things that we think truly matter, being deceived from things that truly do matter. We're so easily distracted. As C.S. Lewis says, we're so easily enamored with puddles of mud because we can't imagine what a vacation by the sea looks like. Help us to embrace your word by truth, by faith, so that it radically changes the way we look around our lives and lead our lives. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.